And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus 33 today. We are trucking through this book of Exodus. And while you're turning there, and if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we'll put it up on the screen for you here in a moment. But for those of you that brought one, you're turning there. Have you, have you ever gotten something that you were really trying hard to get because you thought it was going to bring you the good life? You thought it was going to be heaven on earth. And then finally when you got it, you realized it was not all that. It was not as awesome as you thought it would be. Maybe instead of heaven, it kind of proved how empty you felt or how dissatisfied you were with life in general. I think I was 11 when I felt this for the first time. Sounds odd that I would remember something like that, that profound and existential at the age of 11, but that's because that was the age that I got Mike Tyson's punch out for the Nintendo, right? I just hounded my parents for it. I finally got it, and I I attempted to get to Mike Tyson without the cheat codes. I gave it my all for at least a month or two, at least, and then I realized, wait, you could get to Mike Tyson without actually going through the game. I could just use a code. So some, some of you don't know, you got about six or seven fighters you got to get through before you could fight the digital version of the heavyweight champion of the world, right? Um, or you can bang in a cheat code and just show up right there, right in front of Mike Tyson. I did it with a room full of middle school witnesses. I defeated Mike Tyson. I put him on the ground, right? And here's the interesting about it. Someone spoke with him and interviewed him a year ago. He still has not beaten himself in the video game, right? So I actually beat Mike Tyson twice because I beat him on the video game and I beat him before he could beat himself. But I remember when I was done thinking, that's it? Like, what's next? Just turn around and looking at all the bros in the room thinking, I just did it. And I don't know what that means. I don't know where we go from here. I can't believe that's it. Listen, I, I would grow over the years to have many more grown-up things, promise that it would bring me the good life. I mean, it wasn't always going to be Mike Tyson's punch out, but that feeling of dissatisfaction when I finally got my hands on it, that wouldn't change. I would get to thing after thing after thing that over the years promised would bring me heaven on earth just to find out that when I finally got my hands around it, not so much. Even, listen, even my salvation was like that. Some of you have heard my salvation story. I'm not going to tell all of it, but I did find myself on one Monday night in the fall of 1996 having achieved everything I wanted, everything I fought so hard my entire life. I walked my life in one direction. I was very determined, very disciplined, and very resolved to get some goals met, and I met them. I met them all in my senior year of college. I remember, got the job I wanted, got the medical school I wanted, got the girl I wanted, got the car I wanted, I got everything I wanted, and what I felt was a deep sadness. I felt, I felt scared, I felt confused, I felt empty, depressed, looking around thinking, is this it? Is this really it? And is this it? That's a question that billions of people ask all the time. Is this it? Some of us, even today, whether you're watching or you're here, wondering if life gets any better. You're still looking for the promised land, still looking for heaven on earth, the good life. Some of you have found it and you're bored. Scared, sad, depressed. And listen, I think sometimes God's judgment can take the form of letting us have whatever it is we're chasing after. Like the dumb dog that's chasing after the car and then the car stops and then the dog just kind of stops because it doesn't know what to do with the car that it just caught. Sometimes God will just let us have what we are after. He'll just lift his hand And we will find out as a form of God's judgment that when we finally get to this heaven that we thought would be the good life, it's really more of a hell. In fact, it's no good place at all. And I think that's literally what hell is too, by the way. 
Hell is God letting us finally catch what it is that we've been chasing after, which is a life independent of him. It's him lifting his hand and saying, you want it, you got it. You want it, you got it. Now, after my salvation, it was a radical salvation, and I wanted more God every day. Every day, all I cared about was more God. That's all I thought about. That's all I, when I woke up in the morning and my, my feet hit the ground is, what can I do to steal another moment away with the Lord, right? I was that guy that if I walked into a conversation with other guys my age and they're talking about the football game or movie they just saw, I'd be like, yeah, man, that was a great football game. I saw it too. It was pretty awesome. And about Jesus. Jesus is awesome too. Let's talk about Jesus for the next 20 minutes. I was that guy making it awkward in every conversation because in my life, in my mind, a life without more of God just was not worth living. Didn't make any sense to me. But as I grew older, just like the parable of the soils, thorns would grow around me and start to choke the word out. I became more and more content with just the things of God, the furniture, we could say, of a Christian life, right? That's all I cared about. And that became the person that Paul is speaking squarely to when he talks to the Galatian church, and he says, I am astonished, shocked, bewildered, beside myself. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And for me, the gospel had turned from just a God-centered, more of God type of gospel where it's the good news of what God has done through Jesus to just chasing after the good life that I used to chase after before Christ, but now I've got a Christian badge on. Now I've got Christian furniture in my life. But it's the same goals I always wanted, right? So what began for me is when can I come before the presence of God again turned into I don't have any idea where my Bible is and I'm not sure it bothers me anymore. And you probably have sensed or felt the same thing. If probably you might be there now, right? Or you're able to make it through entire days just to realize at the very end of the day, I didn't even think about God today. Like I didn't even think about Christ. I didn't even formulate a coherent thought about the person of Jesus at all today. I haven't prayed in the last week. I don't know where my Bible's at. I, don't, I haven't contacted anyone. from. It, it's just it's a lethargically lived Christian life. And that's, that's where I ended up looking for a good life outside of God's presence, the good life, the same good life that I'd always look for, which is one of rest and peace and provision and safety and comfort. We hunt for those things diligently no matter who we are because it's in all of us to want the good life. It's inside all of us to want that. In Israel that we're reading about in Exodus 33, they're no different. They are aimed at the good life. The promised land, which is squarely before them. Now, where we left off last week, especially if you weren't here, things are kind of raw, right? That's just where we stopped reading the Bible. They had taken their idol, the golden calf, they had ground it, they burned it, and then they ground it, and then they put it in some water, and then they drank it, made a little smoothie out of it, they drank it so that it would mix with their waste, and it just provoked them to leave it behind, right? But then that's it. I mean, the mood is awkward. They probably thought, well, what now? What are we supposed to expect moving forward? We've all had moments like this, what now moments, after you've been maybe admonished or rebuked by somebody, or you had a pretty heavy collision, and even though you've trafficked pretty highly in apologies, and there's, there's a contrite spirit, and everyone's on the same page, there's still kind of a, an awkward mood that hangs in the air of, what next? There's still eggshells to walk on, trying to figure out what is expected for the next hour, the next day, moving forward in general. That is the mood of the passage where we pick it up. Your Bible has moods, by the way, right? 
And it helps to capture the meaning of some. If you can just see what would people be feeling in a moment like this, and that's what we're feeling. That's what we're stepping into. So let's look at Exodus 33. We're going to be in verse 1, and we're just going to read a few verses at a time. That's the most helpful way to walk through this passage, but this is the word of the Lord for us today. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Okay. This is what's happening. He's saying, go forth. The promised land is in front of you. Land of milk and honey. By the way, that's not such an enticement for us today, milk and honey. We can go right down to Whole Foods and buy it. You'll pay too much for it. But you can buy it at Whole Foods. You can go anywhere and get milk and get honey, and it's not that big of a deal, right? But those were symbols of a prosperous, wealthy, peaceful lifestyle. Today, you could slip a Tesla in there or whatever it would be for you. What would milk and honey look like for you? So don't let that get too far from you, what he's saying right here. He's saying there's a land out there, it's in front of you, I'm going to send an angel, just keep tracking, but I'm out. I'm not going. I won't be with you. And it says that this is a disastrous word that made them mourn, right? After all, I mean, the promised land was a little consolation without the promise maker that goes before you, because now the good life, not going to be so good anymore. That's why they're mourning. So what do they do? They strip their ornaments and jewelry that kind of symbolized a life that was connected to the carnal world. It's a somber moment. So the things that they were wearing just felt inappropriate at the time. They took them off. It's kind of like when you go to a football game, especially college, and you see those goons that paint themselves the school colors, right? And they get that paint everywhere. I saw one the other day. I think it was Florida State fans probably. But they had the red and they had the gold, I mean, up in the ears and up in the nose and the eyelids. And I thought, what happens if you lose? You're going to feel so stupid. And you've seen it happen, right? They're all, the ESPN pans over and they look so sad with all that body paint on. And you know what they're thinking inside. How quickly can I get this crap off of me? Like, how quick can I get home? Because this feels inappropriate right now. That's not what's going on. It's kind of like what's going on right now, okay? Our football teams are better than theirs were back then. But still, this felt inappropriate for them that they would have the trappings and the ornaments of a life connected to the world, and that's being rebuked right now. So they're going to separate themselves, even symbolically. They're pivoting. They're changing their posture, okay? Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. 
When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at its tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. It's important to know this tent is not the tabernacle. Um, If you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at the tabernacle, that was a much larger tent. It was put up in the midst of the camp, in the middle, and then they would camp concentrically around it. This tent of meeting is far outside the camp, and this is a place that Moses would go and meet with the Lord, it says, face to face. Now later on, God's about to say that no one is ever going to see his face. So which is it? Is it face to face or does nobody see God's face? Face-to-face is an ancient way of saying that they spoke to each other closely, tight proximity and intimacy as friends would, as friends would communicate. They weren't firewalled off from each other with veils like what you would see in the tabernacle. They were friends, which is odd language for us to think on this level, especially with the God of the Old Testament, right? To be friends with God. We imagine ourselves and our position with God in several different directions, but friend is probably one of the least used one. We imagine God to be master, and he is. Creator, and he is. He is our general. He is our judge. He is our father. All of these are correct. But God says repeatedly that he sees his people as friends. And if you're in Christ today, Christ sees you as a friend. This is why he says in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. That's cool. And you know what's even cooler is later on, later on, a millennia later, Moses would see the face of God. He would see his face. There would be this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus would be transfigured and Isaiah would be there and Moses would be there and Moses talking to Jesus about the gospel would see God face to face. Super cool. But today, as we zoom in on this passage, Moses went into this tent and a cloud would cover the entrance and guard the interaction between God himself and our mediator, mankind's mediator, in the person of Moses. Just two friends, two friends talking face to face. Then we have verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Let me read that promise again. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So he is relenting. And he says, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? And I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do for you. You have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. This is Moses' primary concern here, losing God's presence. That's his ultimate. That's the primary. Because what good is a land of milk and honey 
when the creator is not there? What good is the promised, the promised good life without God's presence? I mean, why even bother? How unsatisfying, how scary, how nightmarish, how, how depressing. That's what's going on here. And then he finishes in verse 18. And he says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay. So Moses is asking for God's glory, and God makes him understand that he's just going to catch a fleeting, fleeting glimpse. It's kind of like when you see someone run out of a room really quick, and you're not even quite sure that you saw them. You saw the shadow of the person. That's what he's going to allow him to see, and even that will be too much. Now next week, we're going to look at what God says and how he introduces himself as the Lord. He's going to give an introduction. He's going to teach Moses his name. And not to be too dramatic, it's actually one of the most important passages in your entire Bible right? It is. If you want your idea of God to be expanded and you want to see God as kind and loving in the Old Testament every bit as much as he is in the New Testament, you're going to want to hear how God introduces himself to Moses as he's clinging on to a rock for dear life because that's what's happening in that moment. But today I don't want to lose this quest for presence because I think many of us in this room, me included, might find ourselves handling that tent meeting a little bit differently than Moses did. Where God says to him, and God would say to us, there is a promised land, there's a good life, there's milk and honey before you, go on your merry way, but I'm out. I won't be there. I know too many times in my life I would hear something like that from God and say, okay, but there's still good stuff there, right? I mean, what I heard you say is there's a promised land and there's a good life for me, regardless of you being there. I think a lot of us can find ourselves in the same place. We often find ourselves hoping to enjoy a good life instead of the abounding deep presence of God. As long as I have friends, as long as I have health, retirement, safety, happiness, companionship, God need not be in the room. I'll be just fine. Just fine. I'll be satisfied. And some of us are satisfied, right? Haven't chased the presence of God for years. A life full of Christian furniture. So looking for the same good life we were without Jesus. That's why Moses and what he is doing here is so provocative for us because he says, I'm not interested in moving one more step without your presence. If you're out, I'm out. If you're out, I'm out. All these things, wealth, rest, prominence, peace, home, growth, none of it makes sense if you are gone, right? And when we read something like this, for many of us, it seems so out of reach. This type of devotion and commitment to the presence of God, it feels so very much out of reach. But this is a good picture of a resolved life for God or nothing else. God or nothing. There is no milk and there is no honey and there is no heaven without the presence of God. Heaven without the presence of God, that's just another way of saying hell. That's just another way of saying the word hell. And this, this has important implications for those of us who are missionaries, right? 
And I'm not speaking about missionaries that are going overseas. I'm speaking about missionaries that are getting up and going to work tomorrow, right? If you are a Christian, you are a missionary. There's no other distinction that anyone from the New Testament would understand. If you're a Christian, you are a a missionary. And one of the things that we have noticed in America is that we've corrupted even gospel extension to make heaven the prize. Have you noticed that? Heaven is the thing to be won. Heaven is what we elevate. When I became a Christian, I think I was... Man, I was so wet from baptism still probably. I mean, I, I remember going my first class. It was a class on evangelism, the very first class I ever went to, right? And they didn't teach the best way of doing it, but I didn't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm a moron, you know? I'm just uh, trying to figure out this thing called, I don't think I even owned a Bible at the time. But they taught me how to lead somebody to Jesus using a tool called the two-question test. Some of you have used it. Some of you have worn it out. I sure wore it out, county fairs, state fairs, the mall, Anywhere where somebody would just be standing that I could kind of blitzkrieg and zoom in and quiz, I would do it. And this is how the two-question test would sound. Have you, question number one, they're barely listening, by the way, whenever you're giving this test. Have you come to the place in your life where you know that if you died, you would go to heaven? Heaven. Now, it doesn't matter what the answer to that question is because you've got a second one locked and loaded, ready to go. Question number two. If you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Heaven. You see, heaven is the fulcrum to this presentation, but the prize of salvation isn't a place. It's a person. It's a person. It's the saturating presence of God which makes heaven even heavenly. Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms, but there's a line in there where Asaph, he says, whom have I in heaven but you? In heaven looking around, all the cool stuff that there will be. Who do I have but you? Whom and I have in, in, in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth, he says, that I desire besides you. There's another Bible version that says it this way, you're all I want in heaven, you're all I want on earth. That's the prayer of Asaph. But let me be clear while we're here. If you believe yourself to be a Christian because you said no to hell and yes to heaven, and you have no urge or hunger for more of God, you need to have a serious conversation with yourself and someone close to you. You need to seriously question your salvation. Hear me even more clearly. I have zero problems telling people I don't think they're Christians. Zero problems. I get it. You never can know with 100%. Only God knows. I get all of that. You could kind of know sometimes though, right? You can kind of know sometimes. This is what John says in 1 John. He says, and they, they are people that went to church in our comm groups, owned a Bible, wrote checks, they showed up to things, they sang on stage, people, people that everyone knew. He says, they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain, plain, that they are not all of us. Think about that. This is what it means to work out your salvation. Think about it. A nine-year-old who states through very genuine tears, by the way, that they don't want to go to hell. A nine-year-old, a seven-year-old that states very clearly that they don't want to be separated from their mom and from their dad. They don't want to be away from their friends. They don't want to go to a place where there's bad people. They don't want to go to hell. That might be a ministry of the Holy Spirit. It might be fight or flight, too. It might be. When kids make that decision to not burn for eternity, and that's usually how we push it before kids, when kids make that decision to not burn for eternity, but they grow 
in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s to have no passion for God. They need some hard questions. Hard questions. I mean, that is the deep southern apologetic, isn't it? The best apologetic, the best way of extending the gospel to those that live in the Appalachian deep south, it might be to start with honesty, to ask some hard questions and not be afraid to tell them something that could be life-saving. And some of you are these aged kids, by the way, made decisions long ago, through tears, genuinely wanting something to happen, seriously scared of a life without God. Let me ask you a question. Do you want more of God today? Do you hunger for God? Do you desire more than anything on this earth? The things that you said when they were putting you in the waters of baptism, do they still hold true? Or are you okay moving forward without him to the promised land, even if he's not there? What would that look like for you? Listen, whether you're saved, not saved, I think we can all say that our natural trajectory is to move away from God. It's to move away from God and be satisfied with milk and honey. Christianity, if anything, is a journey where we are reversing, repeatedly reversing this natural slide away from God. If you were to plot a Christian journey on a map, it wouldn't be a straight line. It would go up and then down and then up and then down. It'd have troughs and mountaintops, seasons of great personal revival where you've realized how south things have gotten and you just dedicate yourself with a, with a, with a serious commitment and devotion. And when you do that, you need to know that that's the Holy Spirit being very kind to you, granting you repentance. The Holy Spirit is being kind to you, granting you faith to trust, granting you courage to move through some walls. But then you find yourself kind of dipping down, a life of thorns, choking out the word of God. And then you find yourself back up again. That, that is the Christian life. It's a life of returning. It's a life of recalibration. And we see it in the Bible all the time. David, Judas, Abraham, Moses, Noah, Jonah, Peter. It's a story of returns, of recalibrations, tender moments where men and women of God take off the trappings of the world, the ornaments and the jewelry, and they head towards the presence of God who makes heaven itself heavenly. So what do we do with, with a passage like this today in 2021? Here's the good news, right? We no longer have to put a tent together and all stand far off at our own tents and wait for this mediator to go and walk inside while this cloud envelops the entrance. We don't have to do that anymore. We have immediate access to God through the spirit that he granted us upon salvation immediate access. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians. For through him, him meaning Jesus, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Truth is, is we are God's tent now. We are God's tent, his spirit in us. Friends of God speaking face to face. No veil, no priests, just the Holy Spirit. This is what this means, by the way, if you really want to get down in the weeds. It means that that broken prayer time that you have, where you're trying to squeeze it into your morning routine, and you're hovering someplace between distraction and devotion, but you don't even really know what to pray for. You're using broken words and broken sentences. You, you don't remember a passage, so you kind of make something up that sounds like something you read once, you know, and you don't even really know how to feel. You're just kind of trying 
Do you realize that there is just as much weight in the friendship of God in that moment as there was with Moses in the tent? Just as much. Ponder that for a moment. Even when you don't know what to say, even when you are struggling through the broken thoughts, the broken verbiage, the broken intentions, your motivations even, the Holy Spirit comes in for the rescue, for the win, and intercedes for us. Paul says to the Romans, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is amazing. It's amazing. Because of what Jesus did, his passion for us, we have access to God. Direct access. We're no longer looking for the promised land of milk and honey. It has come to us now. We have him. We have him. We're no longer marching towards a place of rest. Rest has punched through the cross and marched towards us. That's the story of the gospel. That's where we start. It's come towards us. That's why he says in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's an echo, by the way. He's actually using the exact same words as God is to Moses when he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And that's what we want in this jagged wilderness that we live in is the restful presence of God as a friend. God as a friend. Since the garden, we've wanted this. Listen, you were never built to be satisfied with the furniture of Christianity alone. Come on. And you were, you were not built to be satisfied with the good life, whatever that even looks like. In fact, when God is all you have left, you have everything you need. When God is all you have left, I mean, have you ever been in a place where you've had nothing but God? And I mean no answers, no hope, no time, no money, no energy, no anything. All you had was God himself. Did you not grow in that time? Did he not seem much bigger, much closer, much more tangible? Was he not enough? Here's the truth. Even if you had all the milk and honey in the world, without the presence of God, you'd be in hell. You know how I know that? Paul tells us. He's, he's a guy that's uniquely voiced in this. He has the experience I don't have. This is what he told the, the, told the Philippian church in chapter 3. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Important note about Paul. He had it all. He had it all. He had the reputation. He had the power. He, he was a shooting star. His trajectory was straight up. He had everything he wanted. A Pharisee among Pharisees worked his whole life in one direction, just like I did. Finally gets everything. And then Christ ruins him, and he comes to realize very quickly, all of this stuff, it's in the way. It's in the way of my true good life. Milk and honey for me is more of God, and all this stuff is in the way. Listen, this applies to us as missionaries. He says to missionaries, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's, that's what Moses is. Moses and the people of Israel are extending the promises and the story of God throughout a whole world right now. Right? Just like we are, but better. What we have is better through the gospel. And what we have is Jesus repeating even this where he says, and I will be with you even to the edges of the earth. I will be with you. Friend to friend. You see, mission relies on God's presence, not mechanics or strategy. 
Those things are important. That's why we teach classes on it. That's why I've got a shelf full of books on it. But it requires God's presence or nothing moves forward. I think sometimes we spend so much time practicing our words for evangelism or maybe not evangelizing because we're not sure what words to use. We often sometimes, or often, forget that the boulders that we really need to move out of the way, only God can move those. So we should focus less on what we will say and focus more on asking God for his presence in that moment, his presence with that person, his friendship with our neighbor. That's what we should ask. And ditch the two-question test for crying out loud. At best, it's confusing. At worst, it's a false gospel. At worst. But for all of us, whether you're a disciple that's walking towards the cross, trying to learn how to be more like Jesus, and you feel lost and you're not saved, and you're trying to figure out this Christianity thing, or you are a disciple that's growing from the cross and you are definitively growing, what does a good life look like for you? Let's just be honest for a moment. What does it look like? What do you really want? Let me really want. What do you really, really want? Asaph, he says, there is nothing on earth that I want besides God, and there's nothing in heaven that I want besides God. If I'm honest, sometimes I read that and I think, yeah, but there are a couple other things too. There's a couple other things. I mean, I want God a lot, but there are a couple other things. Or Moses, is God's presence the only way you're willing to move forward? Or will the good life get you there too, outside of God? The sons of Korah, one day in God's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Well, it depends on what elsewhere is, right? Maybe not. Maybe elsewhere is pretty cool. King David where he says that his soul thirsts for God, his flesh faints for more of God. Does your heart faint at the idea of more than God, or does your heart faint at the idea of more of fill in the blank? That's what we're left with. It's the struggle of desiring God above all things. If this is a struggle for you, it's simple. Tell your friend about it. Tell God, take it to him. Approach your friend in God and just tell him. Tell him what he already knows. By the way, good friends already know what you need before you even ask, and he is definitively the best friend we've ever had. Tell him. Ask him to break your heart. Ask him. Beg him to not let you have what you're really chasing after in this world. Even if it means broken sentences and broken words and your motivations are topsy-turvy, let the Holy Spirit intercede where you cannot form thoughts and you can't make sense of what you're feeling and ask God to change your heart back towards the gospel that you've abandoned. This is the life of a disciple, full of dips and peaks. But there is no satisfying milk and honey without the presence of God. There is no heaven without the heaven maker. There's no promised land without the promise maker and the promise keeper. So there's plenty of room for us to repent as a church. Where we say to ourselves, God is not good. I've got to look for good in some other place. There's a promised land out there, but he has not come to me. That's a place of repentance for all of us. And if you're listening, you're watching, you're here, and you would say that you are not close to God, you are not what we would call a Christian, I've got a different two-question test for you. I think probably a more theologically robust one. It's just this. Is God your friend? Is God your friend? How do you know? How do you know? What makes God friendly to you?
Because if the answer is anything besides your trust in his work, God is no friend at all. And this is the best you have. This is your good life. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, meaning that there was no friendship, no intimacy. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You might have behaved, but you might not be friends. You might even perform well around the Christian furniture that we have and not be friends. That's possible. If it wasn't possible, Jesus wouldn't be saying this. If this was not possible, it wouldn't be true that John said some people left, so we know that they were not of us. Those things wouldn't be said. So if this is you today, listen, I don't care about whatever the prayer was you had when you were seven years old with the guy or the gal that really was truly genuinely wanting to see something happen in your life, not to throw any shade on the intentions of that moment. But if you have zero desire for God, you're going to need to work that out. Work out your salvation. Because hell is not hell because it's hot or because it's full of criminals. Right? That's not what makes hell what it is. It's hell because God is there for sure, but he's presiding as righteous judge. Not fatherly, kind, loving. It's a different, it's a different presence. So I'm submitting that you don't turn to heaven for heaven's sake, but turn to the centerpiece of heaven, which is God himself, whose glory fills the very boundaries of heaven.